coming to get you, Barbara. I ain't one to make a fuss about a thing like that. Make your wishes. They're coming for you. Everyone and welcome back to Deep Cuts of Horror, the horror podcast that cuts deeper. My name's Dylan, and I'm joined back today with the, my co-hosts Jacob and Martha. Say hi, guys. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. I'm not much more creative than that. I was just worried we were going to say oh. it at the same time. <laughs> I don't know why you would think that. I had no count off. <laughs> this is why we need a rehearsal. But it's fine. You all know why we're here. We've spent two weeks discussing Rose Red. We're finally going to wrap it up with the ultimate, uh, thrilling, epic, Stephen King, maybe a bit lackluster conclusion. We'll talk about it to the epic Rose Red, part three, night three, the night that ended it all. Are you guys ready for this conversation? I'm ready for the mayhem that's probably going to be this, the conversation about this third final part. All right. So, uh, I guess uh, I guess our first piece of information is, what are our thoughts overall so far? Uh, Jacob, I'll open it up to you to start us out. So, when you say so far, do you mean not including... Uh, yes. So, it's basically just a summation of what Yes, going into in the finale. One and two. I think that... Yeah, I think that the the setup in episode one was, well, or the first night, if you want to refer to it that way, was very, very strong. It got me really hyped up to see what was going to go down in this house. Episode two, uh, the second night, felt like a bit of a mess. Uh, everyone's going in all sorts of different directions. And going into part three, I would be hoping that this is all going to converge and that we're going to get some kind of satisfying climax and conclusion. Yeah, and like a, like a, like a really bad Tinder date, you only got about 75% of that. <laughs> I would wager that may be an above-average Tinder date. I would say so. Like They paid for the meal, but... And there, at, at some point, there was a contemplation of calling your, or, or texting your best friend and being like, hey, can you, like, call me and tell me that, like, your kids are sick and you need me to drive across the United States to save them or something because I need to go. So, there's always that. Day. Martha would be like, I need an angel shot. And they'd be like, bitch, this is a Waffle House. <laughs> <laughs> you come here of your own consent. Like, you ended up at this point, you're just a bit too far gone <laughs> for saving. <laughs> <laughs> this is a waffle house deal with your fucking problems <laughs> okay that's not we necessarily true that's not necessarily true waffle house will help you out um it's true it's not a waffle house it's a waffle home i stopped in there after work so it's about midnight um it was about midnight and for some reason my car just died on me i had both the the server and the cook out there with jumper cables trying to help me jump off my car. And they got me out of there after I spent, and I only spent like eight bucks on my meal. It's true what they say. It's a waffle home, not a waffle house. I've never heard anyone say that before. I don't know. I always end up at waffle house after like my worst afternoons, or at least it was always my worst afternoons. And it was always by myself. And it was always at like, 
11, 12 o'clock at night and just completely always sitting there just being like, what have I done up until this point? Like, what am I doing? Like, how did I get myself in this situation? I'm at Waffle House at midnight by myself in Nashville. Like, yeah. <laughs> I've done that with Murfreesboro and Chattanooga Waffle Houses, too. Yeah, and then you see the lady with just too much facial hair and not enough teeth. And you're like, it could be worse. She's got a little bit of hair sticking up from under her hat. It makes me inordinately angry when I actually go to Waffle House in the morning around the time that people eat breakfast and it's full. I just like start ranting about how it's way too late in the day for people to be going to Waffle House and I shouldn't have to be dealing with this. Like uh, when one of my relatives was having surgery in the hospital, uh, we were driving around trying to find somewhere to eat and all the Waffle Houses, you know, this, this breakfast restaurant, they were all full at breakfast time. And it was just making me so mad. But you never need Good a reservation. And they'll make room for you. Even if it's the last booth by the bathrooms. They will Do you room. mind sitting with several other families? <laughs> we can seat you, but you're going to eat with about three separate families. <laughs> They're all really nice. They've all really bonded. Because all of them have sons named John. So, it's already like one big family. I feel like Waffle House is one of those in-between spaces. Just one of those in-between spaces where you walk in and suddenly it is like 5 o'clock on a rainy morning in 1992. Like one of the one of the patches where reality is wearing yes. thin. Yes. Like suddenly everything's different. In the middle of the summer, it's like, okay, it's a stormy day early in the morning, even though it's noon on a... Friday in June. Do you like Waffle House or Huddle House better? Oh, okay. Me and Martha have a history with Huddle House. Um, We do. Now, you can't... I think it would have to be specifically that Huddle House, and it would have to be specifically that one waitress we really like named Brittany. I feel like that would be the only way that Huddle House would generally win that question. Yeah, Brittany, friend of the pod. If it's just generic... Yeah, <laughs> Brittany, uh, her and her boyfriend are still together because we're friends on Facebook. So I'm always like rooting for her because she was always the nitrous wa- ni- nicest waitress. So like what would happen is me and Dylan worked third shift together and we would get off at seven o'clock in the morning. So we'd always um, usually about every time we got paid, we'd go to Huddle House um, right after work instead of going to the gym. And <laughs> I can't tell you how many mornings I had their steak breakfast. <laughs> It, it, the 20s are a very weird time in your life. Um, we were having emotional come-aparts um, over our omelets and uh, steak breakfasts. Yeah, and Dylan also liked to take pictures of me and, and edit them in unflattering ways. So that was always fun, too. Yeah, I, ha- I have some Renaissance paintings of her that we might post. Um <laughs> Honestly, I'm okay with it. I don't care. <laughs> if this episode gets a thousand views, I will drop those pictures. <laughs> pictures of, of Martha as a, um, as a Renaissance painting lady. <laughs> so and I will forewarn when there's minimal clothes. Just double tits out. <laughs> when you sort of slyly said that you had a history with Waffle House, it sounded like a bad thing, but this is all sounding like a good time. Yeah, I guess. I mean, we cried a lot, and or uh, uh, let me rephrase that: I cried a lot in the parking lot, and then 
that's where we tended to go when Martha's um tender love for the week had decided that they were bored and <laughs> had some children across state they had to take care of. <laughs> that actually happened. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Another friend yeah. of the pod. <laughs> oh my god. Anyways. Mm. No, I don't. I mean, I love both. Waffle House is always going to be the default. When when you can't go anywhere else, you can go home. You can go to your waffle home. Um, your huddle house is where you take a date that you're not really expecting a whole lot out of. That's or, accurate. Or best friends that you want to cry with. Yeah, pretty I mean, much. You've probably infused this huddle house with deep sadness now. Mm. I mean, a house is like a reflection of the people who don't, live within it, right? Don't go there when I'm happy. <laughs> well, here's the thing about Huddle House. Um, they will adjust their menu, but you can't just have them make something off the cuff. You go to a Waffle House, they will make you anything. It doesn't have to be on the menu. I they were, I I had someone make me, yeah I had someone make me French toast like dipping it in the egg mixing it with the cinnamon the whole nine yards wonderful person that's, that's not on the menu no I'm not a French toast person so I've never actually checked every now and then I get a weird craving for it but yeah <laughs> also is this now a podcast about Waffle House. We can that's start like that. For that. I tried to transition us into Rose Red, and like that fucking just didn't work. Yeah. Anyways, I don't even honestly at this point I don't even remember how we got started on the Waffle House, but it's fine. It, it, it's fine. We'll okay, just... Martha, just just <laughs> tell me, <laughs> just tell me the summation of your thoughts, Martha, up until so this okay. point. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think that what I love about Rose Red. So with with episode one is it really sets everything up so well. You you get a lot of um, insight into the characters. It's a lot of getting to know the characters, getting to understand what their point and references in the story, like who they are, what they're going through, their experiences, and what they're looking to maybe achieve from going to Rose Red. You pretty much get like a good summation of that from the characters, and you really get interested in the characters and seeing what's going to happen next. And then you go into part two, and it's just completely wild and unnecessary. Like, there's just so much in there that, like, it just not half of it wasn't necessary. It was redundant, a lot of it, and you just kind of like, okay, well, you know, um, I, I, at this point, I just kind of want to know how it ends. I just want to know what ends up happening to these these characters. And so you go into part three, and you just really want to have, like Jacob said, like you just want to have that satisfying conclusion like of like all the different storylines and things and i'll agree it was about 75 percent of that that you ultimately end up getting which we'll talk about but for me up until this point you know you get super excited with part one part two you're just kind of like well that was kind of fucking weird um and going into part three you're just kind of like okay well let's i guess see what really is is going on here (laughs) i mean i can echo all of that um this is definitely Stephen King's thank you next, Bop. You know, one taught me love, one taught me patience, one taught me pain. Um, and that's pretty much my summation for the whole thing. Love the first part. The second one irritated me a bit. And this one, um, this one 
maybe didn't stick the landing, but we'll get to that at one point. And there are definitely moments that I absolutely love. Still love the characters, but yeah, I'm going to um, leave it to Miss Ariana for this one and just say one taught me love, one taught me patience, and one taught me pain. Thank you, next. It was a beautiful metaphor. I know. Stephen King, Ariana Grande, <laughs> one and the same. I don't think I've ever heard those two names talked about in the same space like that before, but you know what? I'm here for it. There are going to be, uh, what you call it, what what the kids call it these days, photoshops. Photoshops of Ariana Grande with Stephen King's face. <laughs> I'm mostly thinking of the disparity between the two ways you can combine their names. Like, one of them is King Grande, which is, like, so extra. And the other is Ariana... like a Taco Bell item. (laughs) Ariana Stevens. Huh. I like it. It's a power name right there. It is a power name. Um, So, So perhaps... I'm going to use it in my next book. (laughs) (laughs) So, per... Oh, my gosh. So perhaps we should dig right into uh, what's going on. Uh, the third episode picks up almost abruptly right after uh, the second one, even though we get a bunch of establishing shots of the house, which I feel like you could probably take those, you should have taken those out for the home video release. Um, Cause you're in the middle of all this action and now all of a sudden you're just getting, establishing shots of rooms with nothing happening but they did take the time to edit out the um opening credits so i guess that's nice they edited out the title card (laughs) Uh, we still have joyce ranting about architecture though Uh, houses she doesn't stop that the entire time. There's no. at no point in time that she ever shuts the fuck up about how great the house is. Houses are like sharks. They yeah, only they're bite like when fries. you touch the private parts. <laughs> that was... I don't know if that... I don't think that's true of sharks, but that was a weirdly, like, decent metaphor. <laughs> Oh, I love Fifty First State so fucking much. Sorry, I watched that this weekend. <laughs> oh, I can't even remember anything we were talking about. I can just keep hearing that in my head over and over. <laughs> uh, no, we're talking about how like Emery is lost, running from room to room. Vic is dead. Everybody's panicking, and then we just cut to a bunch of like skyline shots of Joyce going, "Houses are alive. <laughs> Houses are alive with the new Kenmore fridge." It will be alive, too. She's just wandering the house, taking, like, uh, doing those, like, uh, electronic readings, like, checking everything out, trying to get ghosts and stuff while they're literally dropping, like, flies around her. Mm -hmm. And she's just completely unfazed, too. She's just like, I am here for one thing, and I don't care about y'all. Joyce Reardon is in her bag. Literally a dead. This whole trip is all about her. So... Does anything actually happen to her until the end? Like, no. does she experience anything? I didn't think so. I think they wanted to make it out to seem like the house liked her. Like, she came with the purpose of helping the house, so at that point, like, they're just like, you know, when the time's right, we'll just, you know. I think the house just mostly used her. her. Alone. 
Pretty much. That's a, you know, going back to what I mentioned the last um, couple times we talked about it, is the fact that I genuinely feel like the house is really the, like, the big bad villain. Like, the, you know, it has influence over them and, and is using people for their own, like, gain and, like, using people's images, their likeness, and then just outright just you know it got into joyce's head she became obsessed and with that obsession it was able to sprout and the house is able to use her to get the assistance it needs to get back to being fully awake and alive and having some fresh meat i don't think the house really did anything to joyce i think she just spiraled um because she does have her moment of clarity toward the end but i think she was just on a downward spiral i mean you think this whole trip is the summation of what she's developed into her life's work and this is a good transition into something i wanted to talk about a big theme in this story is autism and one thing about (laughs) stay with me here um one thing about autism is hyperfixation and there is a lot of hyperfixation in and around this story. Joyce has a hyperfixation, I had a hyperfixation. Um I'm pretty sure that's probably cuz I am probably slightly neurodivergent. Uh <laughs> but the whole and Ellen also had her own hyper-obsession with living forever. So really, this whole story could probably be summed up. I'm not sure what point I'm trying to make, actually. It's just something that I noted watching this, is all these people have these crazy hyper-fixations. Sounds like you're saying that autism is a core theme of Rose Red. I think it is. We don't really understand it, but we know what hyper-fixation is. Yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, Stephen King, as wild as he is, he normally does have a reason for a lot of the themes and the stuff that he uses in his stories. He genuinely sometimes does have something to kind of say with it. I'm pretty sure in this one was just pain pills. Well, that, and you know, he he originally was supposed to do it with Spielberg, and then Spielberg dropped it, but anyways. I'm sorry, now you have me imagining like a movie poster for Rose Red, where it's just Annie in like a really angry pose sending boulders down to destroy the town around her mm-hmm. and the tag just says autism rocks <laughs> no <laughs> no <laughs> i'm leaving the group chat <laughs> oh, now right, you they were in fact rocks chat. Yeah, you don't even look at the chat. Me literally in the chat putting chat. We can't hear you, Martha. I'm like, I'm trying to get their attention by popping notifications in our chat. And none of them are looking at the chat. And so I just start typing the word chat. Well, that was Ellen's first mistake when they got the Ouija board out. She's a woman. No one cares what she has to say from beyond the grave. (laughs) (laughs) Ellen's speaking to us from this Ouija board. Who cares? (laughs) Uh, but no things were not different then um martha was talking about how the house is like this looming evil presence and i was just wondering what the two of you think the evil originally came from because in part one 
it talks about how before this house was even built, people were killing each other on the construction site. There were strange uh, occurrences. Did it allude to it being a burial ground, or, or did I imagine yeah, that? Yeah, no, I think at some point it does. I think the, yeah, what, it does. what uh what specifically um, Joyce says when she was talking about house it was that the land had a tendency to make people mad. That the yes. land made people angry. So I genuinely can see it being built off the basis that the land is sacrament and it's been disrupted. And so therefore that, you know, whatever presence what? was being appeased is now no longer being appeased and is pissed off. The reason that I bring it up is because in the intro monologue to part three, Joyce makes it sound like the house is evil and crazy because Ellen was evil and crazy. She says, like, a house is a reflection of the people that dwell within it or something along those lines. And so that that really kind of sounds like the opposite. Like, it well, was I the think, people. I think it was the combination of what brought it to the point that it got to was Ellen being in the house because I think they amplified each other. I think that the house found a footing and the crazy, you know, because... Like Dylan's mentioned, when he reads her diary, it's kind of obvious that from the start she's not exactly a good person. And she's into some weird shit. And so I think when she moves to the house where the land makes people angry, it takes that bit of maybe what may be receding cruelty in the back of her soul and just kind of brings it to the front and amplifies it because she's being influenced. And then, of course, now the house has found more of a conduit that it's able to amplify its existence by and so then they're they kind of start feeding off each other i think so it's like a chain reaction like like the land combined with just normal life circumstances made ellen evil and crazy and then ellen made the house evil and crazy is that no i just mean like so you have the land right it's you know corrupted it's got a lot of benevolence and evil to it but it doesn't really have like a footing to enact that like it's just land you know like it doesn't have any conduits or anything like that to really bring about real other than just making people mad and, and causing accidents every once in a while when it's been disturbed but then you know once the house is built and ellen moves in ellen who's susceptible to that because she's already kind of fucked up it's amplified like they amplify each other like the house now has a conduit, so it's able to, to basically channel itself and, you know, have some type of, of sway over, like, the actual occurrences other than just, you know, an influence. So you think the land used Ellen as a tool to build the house that it could then use as a weapon? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not trying to put uh, words it, in your mouth, I'm just asking. Yeah, like, pretty much. Um, and the reason why it happened with Ellen is because Ellen, like, Dylan said already had that tendency like was kind of off like she was never like a, a good person from the start so like even before she moved into the house you know that's why it you know it meshed with Ellen so well yeah the the common theme in a lot of Stephen King works is evil places attract evil people um this trend started with the book Salem's Lot and the Marsden house on the hill. Uh, you go into full detail about how uh, the 
James Marsden, I believe it was, or maybe I'm just thinking of the actor. I don't know. Um, but he was an evil man who lived in the house. The house is evil. It attracts evil people, eventually attracts the vampires that come to Salem's Lot. And you have that theme repeated over and over again with people like um, Jack Torrance in The Shining and the Overlook Hotel. All these people who have a darkness are attracted to these sort of places, whether it be Dairy, Maine or Castle Rock, Maine. Um, all these places, there's a darkness that they bring out, that, and it's that like darkness that attracts and brings out the worst in both things. Exactly. That's a better way of putting what I was trying to play, <laughs> what I was trying to say. Given the suite of powers that Rose Red has as a house, I can imagine in some hypothetical Rose Red extended universe, like before the house was built, that people would wander into the forest on this particular lot and you know all of a sudden they would find themselves lost and they couldn't get back like i wonder if maybe the land could change itself in the same way that the house changes itself you remember crouch end <laughs> uh yes i love the short story and the the nightmare and dreamscape episode makes no fucking sense yeah um that so it's a uh, the house is a place where seepage happens or spillage probably yeah, not let's seepage. Use spillage <laughs> it's a uh, thin spot as we talked about earlier yes there's a lot of thin spots in king lore and these thin po- uh, these thinnies as they're called um yeah that's what they're called thinnies in the Dark Tower series are just places where it's just weak between the worlds within the tower. So this does exist. Everything exists in the Dark Tower universe. Everything from the stories they're into Stephen King himself um, and the guy that hit him with a car exist in the Dark Tower universe and are explained. Um, but my con- the connection to Hobbs End is this whole story did kind of remind me a lot of what I like about the short story, um, Crouch End, not Hobbs End, sorry, that's a different thing. Um, except you couldn't really explain it in an hour, and I feel like you need that history. And again, this does feel like some of Stephen King's greatest hits, because uh, I believe I read some notes somewhere about because King always writes backstories to everything about the Overlook before it was built. There was issues. It was also built on an Indian burial ground, the whole thing. So, again, King's greatest hits. You have psychic children, places built on Indian burial grounds, bad places. What you could probably also call mild character recycling, because there are some characters that are recycled from other works and repurposed, I would say. We do have a bit of a character insert when it comes to Emery in the opening of this episode where he's lost. And he's going through the house. And I do like how he's moving around all these sets. But we know, logically, that where he's at shouldn't be where those rooms are. Like, he opens a door... He opens a door to a bedroom. He's in the mirror library. He goes to the other end of the mirror library. He's directly at the steps, not at the hallway. And he goes up a floor and he's in the um, perspective hallway. And then he looks down the stairwell and it just looks like it's endless. 
honestly, I thought it was a really good way to start the episode out because you kind of assume that Emery's fucked. Like, the way you're watching him run around, the way everything has just been happening, like, consecutively up until this point, you think you're going to start this first part with Emery's death, and then you're just going to keep watching them die <laughs> until, like, they're down to the last ones. Oh, yeah, so, this um, episode opens its batshit. Everything is yeah, gone batshit cuckoo when this episode opens, and I really liked it. It really remembers, it remembers, it really reminds the audience about how crazy the house actually is, and reminds them, and you know, nobody really knows where anything's at in this house, and it kind of drives that home to help amp mm-hmm. up the stakes of mm-hmm. when they run off and get lost like Emery currently is. I think it's a bit strange that nothing really comes of Emery getting lost, though. And correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, he just kind of runs around from room to room. The house is changing, as you mentioned, which is a really cool uh, device. But then he just kind of finds his way back and is totally fine. Uh, Apart from, I mean, he's very shaken up for the rest of this episode, but that's for a variety of reasons. Well... It com- it comes at a cost to him, though, because he somehow finds his way back into the main foyer, which logically he shouldn't have been able to do, because he goes in one door and suddenly he's coming out the side. He's not even coming down the stairs of the main foyer. He's coming out of a side door, which logically shouldn't have happened. And he makes it to the door, and because of circumstances that happen tangentially to what's going on, um, the door slams so hard it cuts off his fingers. Mm. And that hurt me. I feel like Emery... Emery gets the shaft in this episode and for the rest of the episode, and people are very inconsiderate to Emery. That's just my two cents. Maybe it's a hot take. I don't know. What do you guys think? That's exactly what I think, too. Like, the whole time you're watching it, you're just like, I, I kind of understand why he's hysterical, y'all. He just had all of his fingers sliced off, and you're kind of treating him like a dick. Granted, he could be nicer in the way that he, you know, presents himself, but, I mean, the man just lost his fingers, so, like, I would probably be yelling and cussing and demanding what needed to be done for us to get out be done if I was in that situation, too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it... it it really sets him up. I, I see what they were doing. They really wanted him to have like a whole arc of you think he's awful and shit, but you know he learns from his ways, and by the end of it, he's nice. Like I get it, but they don't they don't develop it well. Like they just make him shitty, and then suddenly at the end, he's suddenly nice. Like there's no transition there. And the characters are against him for no reason. Every point he brings up um, is a little bit harsher than maybe it could be. But he's still right. What do you think, Jacob? I am so glad to hear you say that, Dylan. And and from what you said, Martha, I feel like you probably agree. Yes, Emery is a bit needlessly sadistic with what he says, especially as the episode goes on. But he's just right. And every character is treating him like he's a monster, like he's crazy. When really the gist of what he's saying is just, Annie is keeping us in this house that is trying to kill us. Why don't we knock her unconscious for like three minutes? He even says that. He says three minutes would be enough. And then we all get out of here. That is a completely reasonable position to take. And 
Yes, he, he just got lost. He's lost fingers. Uh, he's, he's been responsible for someone's death who died in front of him, uh, regardless of how he, he feels about that. And, he's and his mother. seeing ghosts. Yeah, and his mother is there. Uh, like, of course he's acting quote-unquote crazy. I, I feel like the way that the other characters are treating Emery in this episode is almost just a flaw with the story. Yeah. Like, they are dismissing his ideas so readily that, to me, it feels like an excuse for keeping people in the house. Yeah. It's a poor yeah. plot device. Um, I get not wanting to cause bodily harm to her, but his idea of... put Okay, we should probably back up and explain what happened um, to, to cause all this. So... Annie is trying to get this model of the house off of a high shelf, and she's using a chair, um, but she can't quite reach it. I don't know why she didn't use her mind powers. That's another little um, plot issue. Um, <laughs> but so she goes up there, tries to grab it. She slips. She hits her head, and everything opens up. Because at, up until this point and at the end of the last episode, they couldn't get out. They couldn't get out of the house. The doors wouldn't open and the glass of the windows had um, basically become impenetrable. You have people who uh, are banging at it with pull cues, throwing chairs at the windows. They're not breaking. They're not moving. They're not doing anything. But as soon as she is passed out, everything kind of stops. All that stops and the doors open. And while they're scrambling to figure out what to do, um, a voice comes from Annie, not her voice, that says, I believe it's Ellen's. Yes, it's Ellen's voice that says, we seldom have company here at Rose Red. I insist you stay a little longer. And that's when all the doors shut and that's when Emery's fingers get lopped off by the front door because he had them in the doorway. <sighs> um, as I was saying, his idea of just taking nail polish and having her breathe it in a few good times, that was very easily dismissed with, that could kill her. I don't, I mean, no, that seems like one of the more controlled ways to do it. Um, yeah. Everything else just kind of seemed like you were either going to really hurt her um, and it wouldn't knock her out and uh, incur her wrath versus just knocking her out. Or you could even do, like, a blood choke on her to make her pass out. I mean, yeah. To me, this is, like, a really shitty version of the trolley problem. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, ooh, would you kill one person to save 100? It's like, no. Would you knock a person unconscious for three minutes to save everybody? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You do. <laughs> and I don't really see how everybody is... Maybe they didn't really develop it well enough. There's really not enough people, I feel, who are on Annie's side... Um, to justify this, like them not doing anything. Um, I feel like Nick would have been on Emery's side in this. I feel like Kathy would have been on Emery's side in this. Um, I even think Steven would be on, uh, well, Steve would be on their side as well. So it would really only be sister and, uh, sister and Joyce who have an issue with it. At first, I, I was going to say that I thought Steve might 
end up being on Annie's side in that conflict, but then I remembered like how much he hates this house and is afraid of it. So no, I think I agree with you there as well. Yeah. But f- for purposes of the story, everybody is on uh, her side. Except Emery's, who very understandably, like, you lose four fingers, there is some uh, very important veins that run to those fingers. So not only are you contending with the pain, you're also worrying about loss of blood. Yeah, and I feel like it's kind of um, just pushed to the side, the fact that he lost all four of his fingers, they just wrap it up, and he just complains about the pain once in a while. But other than that, like, it, there's never any real fear for Emery's life, and don't really act like it's a major deal. They're just kind of like, ah, shitty for you, Emery. Um, But we're going to keep doing exactly what we were doing before. Because apparently that's working for us. Sorry about your fingers. But it's fine. You're alive. So you're not dead like uh, the rest of them. Emery definitely gets the shaft in this situation. Um, And when you consider that she's the powerhouse, I feel like you could easily write around this whole thing and say, oh, it's because she's too powerful. What happens if we mess up and either her or the house do something against us? You could explain it that way, but no, everybody's just on Annie's side. What if Annie was even lost in the house alone? Uh, and so people wanted to go and try to knock her unconscious, but they they could not find her because the house is protecting her. And maybe a bunch of the ghosts are, like, serving her food and stuff. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, well, you know, placating her like they did with the uh, dolls and the dominoes. Yes. Um, yeah, that would have been a good written excuse, too. Um and um, as a kid, I really didn't think much about it. I was like, yeah, you know, you can't really can't really do that because you think a lot more on feeling. But you're really just knocking this person out for a couple of minutes. Um, and you could, if you all put your brain together, you could probably come up with a good way to do this. Um, she doesn't even have to be fully incapacitated. Maybe a sister could talk to... Yeah, yeah, maybe sister could just talk to her and be like, hey, let's go take a nap. Are you tired? You hit your head. You should probably go rest. Yeah, but then they'd have that plot device of Joyce would be like, no, no, you shouldn't rest. You should hear and play with your new friends. Like, I definitely see Joyce doing that shit. Mm, so that's a bit rough. Um, Just watching it for me. Um, it was probably the most don't run upstairs moment for me that you have in horror movies where they always run upstairs. I feel like incapacitating the kid uh, would have done the job. And again, we're not talking about killing anyone. We're just talking about knocking them out humanely for a few minutes for the betterment of everybody. Um, even if she's not personally holding the doors closed and they're just using her powers to do it. I don't know. Well, I do know. It's just very dumb. Dumb, dumb, dumb. It's also, is it at this point that they mention that, um, or that Nick mentions that they're, um, the house is also probably using Steve as well as Annie? Mm-hmm. Yes. Never once. Steve's as psychic as a ham sandwich. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. What she said. Why a ham sandwich? <laughs> she delivers that line with such confidence that it's easy to overlook how stupid it is. 
Yeah, Where well, by this point, psychic like ham sandwich. <laughs> by this point, uh, Joyce is kind of she's doing her own thing. Um, this is very much that transition into hundred percent cuckoo Joyce uh, that we alluded to in the previous episodes. Um, this whole time, she is just gnawing at the screen and doing everything but foaming at the mouth. And again, to go off what we've already talked about, Joyce's descent into madness isn't really explained well enough for it to feel earned. I don't think. Um, maybe we just ne- didn't get enough uh, pathos with her. Um, but there, we've definitely explained it to a certain extent that she is a bit cuckoo. But the level she's at right now, we never see, like, a part in the story where she just breaks. Um, it's just kind of, boom, all of a sudden she's goes from obsessed to being fanatical. I think a lot of that had to do with the time constraints. Because, I mean, granted, it is longer than a movie because it is a miniseries. But... Uh, when you have that many characters and you're working on developing that many characters uh there's you you run into the issue of having enough time to have that proper like show all the the characters the way that you wanted to i see i think they just sunk so much time into like annie and steve that they kind of lost sight of really doing working on like showing joyce's to me i think it's an issue of joyce's motivation uh, we talked at length in previous episodes about how she's clearly crazy from the beginning, and there are many there are possible explanations for this that she's feeling undervalued and underrespected in a field that nobody takes seriously, et cetera, et cetera. There might be some other factors into it, but her motivation for the entire uh, series up to this point has been get evidence of paranormal activity in Rose Red. That's what she really wants to do. She wants to get evidence, and she wants to be taken seriously and shove it in the face of all the people that are telling her that she is crazy. And she has evidence. There has been crazy shit going down in this house for hours now, like hours of screen time. So like two days worth of time thereabouts in in the series. So she has what she needs. I don't really understand what more she would want at this point. It feels like her obsession moves from proving the existence of the paranormal to having some kind of fetish for the house itself, which I could see you arguing is foreshadowed a little bit just with how romantically she talks about it. But I I don't think we get to see that arc. I I think there, there should be a moment where we get to look at her motivations and see like this, this change in, in goal on her face and kind of get to understand where she's coming from. But I don't think we get to do that. I think she just kind of goes full nuts for not really a justifiable reason. I would say that once again, just like we talked about with them not wanting to knock Annie unconscious, Joyce's madness almost feels like a plot device to me. Like rather than building it up as some character trait with an, a motivation and an arc it's just we want to have a crazy person be on the side of keeping everyone in so let's have joyce do that 
Yeah, she definitely played a distinct role in the plot, and I think that's part of it, too, of why they didn't really, like, flush her out necessarily as a character, was she more or less had a role to play in moving the plot along and impacting the plot to be basically a, a giant plot device. I think that that's really kind of what ended up being with her character, was just a big plot device to, to push it where they wanted to. Which I think it's interesting that one might say Joyce's arc is not as important as other characters if one of the writers or directors took that position i would be very confused because i would say that it you can make a decent argument that joyce is the main character i mean maybe annie's the main character but if not then i would say like joyce is up there right like yes. she's the person we've been following this whole time she's she's, she's I, I would say indisputably the main character of part one at least so to abandon her like this feels unsatisfying I feel like this show would have done well as a Netflix series. Um, you could have, and just do it through the years. You could probably do about one, one or two seasons following Ellen. Do it like they do the show The Crown. One or two seasons following Ellen. And then another season, maybe there's a group in like the uh, 70s or something that go to the house and stuff happens to them. And then you have this group. And so now you have like a good solid four seasons of a program. Um, and you have all this backstory, all this other stuff. I think that would, that would have served the story a lot better and you would have more time to flesh out characters and uh, create sets and just explore all the cool things that this premise allows. Yes, uh, we, we talked about it needing to be a series in one of the previous episodes, and I don't want to retread too much ground, but I have been thinking that just this entire time. This could have done so well like as a, as a modern uh, streaming series, because you could have all of the different characters lost in the house in their own groups, going on their own arcs, and we could explore all sorts of different fun set pieces within the, the rooms. That, that are created and you could really have time to get to know the characters and watch them develop because one thing that i find really strange about rose red is that we take an entire episode to meet these characters and watch them interact and we really get to like them i mean this this movie does a better job of setting up its characters than than most other horror movies that i've ever seen that's stephen king for you but then it doesn't go anywhere. They don't really have meaningful arcs, most of them. And, and the, the arcs that we do have are kind of half-assed. Mm -hmm. So it feels like the reverse problem that a lot of horror movies have, where they just jump right into it with cliche characters, but then you know you have an interesting journey that they go on. Mm -hmm. now, this was the opposite. They were set up really well, and then they don't go anywhere. That's that's pretty much how Stephen King operates. Um, he writes really good characters and really gets you to like them, but the follow through on the story just doesn't. Uh, it it rarely it rarely pays off. Yeah, I can't really think of a time where one of his stories ever really paid off well. Which characters in Rose Red would you say do have solid, identifiable arcs? So, I want to say Sister. Um, and I want to say Steve. And for me, that's kind of about it. 
because we don't, I mean, Annie's just Annie. I mean, she grows into her own a little bit, but the way her character is, it is kind of hard to see, like, an actual arc. So, like, I, I could see, like, she went through some changes and she developed, but she's also also still so young that, you know, I mean, it probably just got her out of her shell a little bit, but I don't think she's really going to have, like, any lasting impacts from it other than having a better understanding of like her abilities and stuff like that and what she can really do and getting to exercise that a little bit um and be appreciated by people like I think that helped her a bit but for the most part like it, it's mainly sister and Steve for me because Emery he was, I felt like he was supposed to really have that arc he just didn't really get the actual arc of it um you know you he pretty much just goes from one extreme to the other by the end of the by the end of the third part. Like there's not really a transition to it. He just is, you know, pissed off because his fingers are cut off. And then when he's not pissed off because his fingers are cut off anymore, he's suddenly really nice at the very end. Um, and and with uh, Kathleen, <laughs> she just is her. Like I don't really feel like. I mean, she got a little bit braver, but you don't really get to know that much about her. Um, or really have her change anything really other than she's just, you know, got a little bit more bravery. So I guess honestly for me it's it's gonna be Steven's sister because they both change and they both have things in the stories that you actively see make them change. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that pretty much exactly. Steve and sister have arcs and then Emery and Annie start at point A and end at point B. But we don't actually see that transition happen. It's funny you mentioned Kathy. Because I, I wouldn't even say she really even has an arc. Because uh, we learned that uh, she did. she's doing the whole project because she wanted to get out and do stuff. Because her therapist said she was a compulsive quitter. She keeps starting things to quit things. And in fact, the whole story is like they don't, they don't finish the weekend. So this is just another... This is just another chapter in Kathy's compulsive quitting because everybody left the project early. Well, actually, one could say that quitting in that regard would be if she gave up and they and just died. They did. They did give up. She didn't die. No, well, honestly, no. though, Kathy's part of the reason they ended up getting out. Well, yeah, but they still. She still didn't like tough it out for the whole weekend. I mean, would you, would have you? I mean... Uh... Okay, look, she's a compulsive quitter. That's all I'm saying. I'm not a compulsive quitter. Um, <laughs> this is, this I, is her journey. I really don't think that the Rose Red uh, sleepaway camp really applies to her compulsive quitting. Uh, it's not like you can say, oh, I'm really going to see this through... And then you get yourself into a life-threatening situation where everyone is dying around you, and so you escape with your life, and it's like, oh shit, what a horrible person you are. You quit again. I, oh, I don't boo. think that's part of her arc. Oh, boo, what uh, happened? It got too hard being in that nice mansion for three days. You couldn't hack it, so you left after two. Oh, poor thing. There was even iced tea in the fridge for you, Kathy. Yeah, like... How about you just stick something out for once? It is kind of weird that out of all the characters, she makes it. Yeah. Like she, she, she doesn't really have much of a purpose. She has a little bit of a personality, but it's mostly it's mostly like insecurity and Jesus. It should have been uh, her. 
It shouldn't have been Nick. It should have been her. God, yeah, that was in my notes. Um, <laughs> just that's probably the most man. infuriating thing is Nick dying. And the way he dies. Like, they couldn't have done him any better than that. Like, what the shit? Like, you wouldn't even think watching it that he actually dies. You're like, okay, well, Nick's tough. He'll he'll get, you know, he'll beat up Zucchina. You know? Yeah, I would have really liked him to have shown back up. And I feel like uh, that's where a Netflix series would have done well, because we would have been able to follow that. I wanted to see him psychic battle. Like, I wanted to see him psychic battle the house. <laughs> and the fact that didn't happen and I, I mean I guess we should talk about it because it, it's relatively one of the, the first things that happened in this this part he, he doesn't make it very far into the into this third episode guys um, Nick uh, and Kathy are just trying to get around the house I guess they get lost and Nick just gets plucked off by Zucchino like it's nothing you don't even see him die you just see you know, Zucchino pops up out of nowhere, so Nick shoves Kathy into a room, closes the door, basically tells her to keep going, do not stop, and basically sacrifices himself to save Kathy, because she's so great, believes in Jesus. So, as a person that likes Nick a lot, it also makes me mad that he died, and that he died in this way. But as a writing decision, I think that it was really good. Uh, firstly, I appreciate that we get to see Nick's character slowly wearing away. Like, for the entire series thus far, he's been very confident, very in control. He he always knows what's going on in other people's heads, and he's able to offer them advice and guidance. And as he gets lost and more and more nervous, he starts to make these awkward, insensitive jokes uh, and Kathy is, like, scolding him for it, and he just kind of straight up admits, you know, I- I'm kind of afraid right now. I don't really know what to do. And seeing that from Nick really kind of instills in the audience the idea that, wow, now these characters are in trouble. Even Nick is freaking out. And then him dying is like a representation of, oh, that control and that leadership and that knowledge is now gone. So I really think that Nick had to die in order for this story to be as good as it could be. Yeah, he was kind of the voice of reason yeah. character. Oh, um, that's a good take. Every, every time something was going on, everybody was talking, spouting their viewpoints, that Nick would always shut it down. I love when they see the rats in that hallway, and Nick says, It's the reincarnation of Emery's mother. <laughs> And then they sing that little song, old friends are the best friends, they're the friends you love the most. R.I.P. Nick. He acts it so well. I just like, wish like he... they had done better with his death. Like, there was just something, like, at least give me one psychic fucking battle. Like, how hard is that to just shoot and film a psychic battle? I mean, it's not that hard. So what the house is a psychic battle, though? I don't know, but I would have liked to have seen it. Because we have Nick, like, unlocking the hallway. I'm sorry, Dylan. No, you're uh, good. I, ha- like, I have we, ha- we have Nick uh, unlocking the hallway in the previous episode, which I would argue is a psychic battle with the house. So, like, what are you looking for? Something like that, just more. Like, I, I don't know. I would have liked to have, like, seen him die or, like, have that confirmation other than at the very end. Because, like, I'm going to be honest. I didn't really think he died. 
I just thought when it was all over, they were going to find him in the house until like the very, very end where you see everybody that died and he's with them and you're just like, oh, fuck, Nick Dick died because you don't really see it. Like you just see getting zucked by Zucchina. Like, I mean, like, I just, I don't know. I can't help but feel like Nick could have like not dying by Zucchina. Like, I feel like he Mm -hmm. had the brains and the strength to be like, you're over a hundred year old vampire. Like I'm not like I I can just push you off of me. You're dust. Like it's fine. <laughs> like I don't know. I just would have liked to like seen something or just seen more than what we saw. So like I mean I understand. I think I understand the ambiguity of it. I think it probably is for the better. Like um, definitely a good writing choice. Um, especially when they had him die, I, I do agree. Cause like, that's, that kind of is what made Kathy have to stand up and like actually contribute to trying. Cause like up until that point, all of the characters are kind of just relying on him thinking that the, he's going to figure out a way to get out. Like genuinely, he's kind of like the, the leader. So I do, I do agree that it was a good writing choice to, to have him go and, and create the way for something else for the other characters. But at the same time, it just felt very unsatisfying, and it just felt very empty. And Kathy was running through that library saying, must quit harder. <laughs> okay, okay. Bad pitch. How about Rose Red remake with Nick played by Gordon Ramsay? Why Gordon Ramsay? Because I want... I want Gordon Ramsay running through this house shouting like, Where's the mirror library? <laughs> <laughs> Just like angrily cursing at, at the architecture. <laughs> Till it obeys. <laughs> Getting angry at the damn house. But no, this house actually is in Washington State. Um, it's a Airbnb and I want to go there and just pour out a 40 for my homie Nick. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> the rest of y'all kind of deserved it, but not my homie Nick. Yeah, Nick, I mean, well, Pam, I, I'm still not even 100% sure the mechanics of how she died. That Pam, was Pam just, and her Pam Pams. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know she drowned, but like, how did she get lured out there and in a trance? Like, who? I just don't understand. How was understand. she in a trance? Like, part two, like, uh, that whole sequence in part two where they're all, like, they're all being let off and, like, mm-hmm. I, you can't tell which ones are copies or, mm-hmm. or Im- like, which ones are, like, the actual people. And, like, there's nothing gets done with when Pam leads Kathy off. I mean, shit, like. It also that, gets even happened. more confusing. It gets more confusing in this one because we learn that, um, what's his name? Um... Bollinger, Kevin Bollinger. Mm-hmm. He didn't die in he didn't die in the solarium. He no. died when he hung himself in the mirror library. Yes, after he led uh Emery's mother and Yeah. So he was still friends. alive. Yeah, he was alive. He was just kind of like a conduit for the house at that point. Which I'm sorry, am I crazy or did we just not actually see that? We didn't see it. Well, we saw that's... we saw um, we saw uh, Bollinger imitating Emery, and then that's it. Yeah, like this is such a weird pseudo twist to pull out your ass and not show on screen. Yeah, it's like, one of those things. That... Show it or it didn't happen. The way that Bollinger's scene in the greenhouse went 
any reasonable person would assume that means he is dead. Mm-hmm. That's why they did and it. That plot twist. That ooh, with the twist. <laughs> uh, like we're not given any explanation for like what the hell happened. Like okay, what what actually happened? If Bollinger's not dead, what creature was dripping saliva on him and jumping down from the ceiling onto him, and then was just like, hey, you want to play uh blackjack? Like what the hell happened? That was Zucchina. No, genuinely, I think it was one of one either her or Alan like banged out and drooling. Yeah, no, I we we talked about that, but like what did they do? Like if if Bollinger isn't dead, then they like jumped from the ceiling. They hypnotized on him his ass. And did something non lethal. Yeah, That's they were just so like, goofy. We need a man. Like we need a man for some of this dumb shit. Like we can't like we can't have one of the girls do this. Because... That is very anti feminist of you. <laughs> no, I'm just saying they're like, We don't want to have the girls doing this bullshit, so you know, we'll leave the grunt work to, to this this poor sap and uh, just wanted to take some pictures. Was it like uh-huh. an indoctrinating pro- an indoctrination process where he was like, yeah, I just really agree with what Rose Red is doing. They got some good ideas. I mean, the, ta- the, um, the tax plan shit, but he has really good ideas on education reform. Maybe they Zucchina's drawing, drawing charts. On the <laughs> greenhouse glass with a magic marker, like explaining her ideologies. Oh. <laughs> and then why didn't he hang himself? Like if he was already under the um, influence of the house, why did he hang himself? Because the house was done with him. But yeah, I imagine that the house apparently made not. Because we still see him. Yeah, but at that point, he's he's actually like dead, and you can tell he's dead. And he looked pretty dead before, though. Yeah, but that was more of, I think, just the actor thing. Did you call him the actor ugly? I mean, he's not pretty. Okay, well, rude, but okay. Um, I'm, I mean, he... What do you want me to say, that I'm attracted to a man that I'm not, Dylan? I mean, it would help, probably. <laughs> I don't think those are the same thing. I'm sorry, I just don't think the man is attractive. Okay. Mm, and you would be wrong, that. but whatever. <laughs> We're all wrong know, about some things. Him, I just saw him as McPoyle, okay? Like, I've seen him too many times as McPoyle, and it's always sunny, and he'll always be McPoyle, and he's just... It, to me, that, and you'll always be wrong, so that's that's a lot going on oh, there. What else is new? When did I ever start being wrong? Like, I, I mean, wasn't there for that. Hmm. You know how people say it's all right? Well, I've always been all wrong, so it's fine. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways. <laughs> so, uh, since we were, uh, we were harping on Nick for so long, I just want to point out that I feel very vindicated this episode. Because last episode, we were talking about what exactly Nick's powers were. And I said that he was a mind reader. And y'all were like, no, he's not He's not just a mind reader. He can do way more than that. He's just like got generic psychic powers, man. Someone stole my Scooby Snacks. And in this episode, he like calls himself a mind reader. And other characters call him a mind reader like three or four times. I just don't think that's all he can do. 
And I, I think if you, just because he says mind reader, because I think that's his biggest thing, but I think over the years he's honed and developed himself into like a full blown, like psychic extraordinaire. You know, I still stand by that. And I still think that. And I think he also himself toned down his abilities because he doesn't want to be a pariah to the world. You know, like, I think he has found a nice line between being able to work with his abilities and also being able to live a life that he wants to live with his abilities. So I think he purposely, because, like, if you notice throughout the movie, there's multiple times where he gets glimpses of something and he doesn't say shit. Like, he's learned to keep his hands close to his vest, you know, and not really, he never once brags about what he can do, can he? He's very, very humble throughout the whole thing about his abilities, who he is, what he does. And a lot of times, anytime anyone compliments him, he tends to reflect it and compliments them in turn. He's and reflects so it back on them. Exactly. So, like, I think that just because he calls himself a mind reader, that don't mean he was just a mind reader. Like, I think he well, genuinely, like, was beyond that scope. He just, you know, wasn't advertising it. What evidence do you have for that, though? Because it's established that being a psychic in Rose Red has a generic amplifying effect. Like, all of these characters, regardless of what they're... Because he gets images. He gets, like, visions of things that are happening way away from where he's at. So I think that goes beyond just, like, a mind reader. Yes, like, like in the what, first though? part when he was okay. at the... At the first part when they're all at the sports bar, he just looks in his beer and he sees uh, Steve and Joyce uh, hugging canoodling. and kissing. Yeah, canoodling. And he says, um, he calls her Dean. I wonder why that is. And then he, like, blows on his beer and it goes away. The image goes away. And neither of those people are there. I'll have to rewatch that scene. Yeah, it's it's stuff like that that just kind of makes... And it's just the way he is about himself in general. Like, he doesn't... I, I just don't see Nick as the type of character to ever be outright, you know, he, telling the world everything about him. And it also seems that he's helping Annie push on the wall in the second part when they're touring the house. Like, if you're just a mind reader, you're not, you know, you're not going to know how to deal with that type of psychic phenomenon. And well, yeah, but that was, I, I preface this by saying that being in Rose Red gives you an amplified psychic ability for well, I mean, yeah, like that's, that, that's yeah. stated in the movie. I mean, like yeah. that. And but, like, he at the same time, like, he knows how to him. do it. Like, he's teaching her how to do it. Like, it's it's got to be something that he has some type of pre-reference, like, before to know how to deal with those types of situations. Like, what can help. Or else he would, you know, he wouldn't have known. Like, I don't feel like that's something you can feel out. Like, I feel like that's something that you have to have some type of um, either experience with or, like, have been in, like, either a similar situation or just know, like, a really good understanding of, like, what you're, what you're capable of. In this universe, the characters seem to have a bizarrely... A specific understanding of of psychic phenomenon like they act like it's as established a thing as superpowers in like the mcu or something this honestly to me feels like an avengers team of psychics like they each have their own label you have the automatic writer you have the precognitive you had the what, what does she call herself a touch see a, a touch, touch no. no a touch no thank you uh and what well, I feel like I'm missing somebody. Am I? Or is that is that it? Emery. You no, have Emery, pre he, uh, and post cognitive. Yeah, pre and, and post cognitive. Yeah. And so with Vicky would then have a mind reader. It, 
even if you even if you guys are right, that's a weird decision for the writers to make because it would be much simpler to have them each with their own specific power set rather than having four of them with specific power sets and then one guy who just like does shit. Yeah, but what I'm saying like, is Joyce weird. doesn't know Nick. That's what I'm saying. Nobody but Nick knows about Nick's shit. So Joyce doesn't. Yeah. On his file. Nick is in his own bag. He he presents himself the way he wants to because he knows the type of work he wants to do and the type of work he doesn't want to do. He he knows the type of people he wants to work with and the, the different things that different, you know. If he knows himself that if he's this all-around, all-in-one psychic, he's going to be getting calls from all kinds of corrupt people in life. Like, all kinds of shit, like, he's going to have to deal with. So he knows, as a super intelligent man, throughout the years of being part of the community, because it definitely is established in the film that, like, the psychics pretty much have, like, an overarching understanding of what normal psychic ability ranges are, what they're like. Um, It it seemed built up kind of like a community. Um, And, I mean, they work pretty much for hire like their psychics pretty much for hire that they've they've put their skills out there and been like okay hey like i'm able to do this you you know there's been evidence that i do this i've successful in my line of work i have no complaints like i get recommendations like they basically make it seem like that um because i mean even emory has pretty much like a fee schedule of his services you know because he's very specific on you know if i do this in this interview afterwards it's this and this much more like it's 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 stuff like that that really lay the foundation that they have an understanding of what psychic abilities are capable of in this world. And I think Nick, he probably either at some point in time learned under somebody or just from experience of being he seems like a very like um wanderlust person. Like I don't envision that type of character staying in one place super long. Um I imagine him having some weird like tragic incident in like his teenage years early 20s that shaped him into like the the tougher uh man that he kind of is and is more resilient and um calculated in the things that he does so i think he just himself just just made the decision that it's safest and best for him if he just presents himself with mild capabilities and can read minds because i mean that being a mind reader could kind of make up an excuse for some other stuff he might find out um, about people that he wants to talk to them about, but doesn't want to express that he knows because of this. It's easiest to just be like, I'm a mind reader, you know, yeah. without really um, being specific with what the mind reader entails. So I, I don't, I don't know if you actually answered the question though, which I asked, which was, do you think it's a weird writing decision to, to have, most of your characters with one specific named power and then no, have they used nick specifically as like almost a leader voice of reason in order to be in that type of position in the group he a lot of the reason why he is that way is because he's he knows so much about them like he he's been able to see so many things about them and just entail like you don't get to see what he's seeing or hearing about them a lot of the times. You just notice he has a look on his face, and then after he has a look on the face, he usually makes a point-blank comment to that other character that's pretty accurate that makes the character open up. So it, it leaves it ambiguous because like, it never outright states that he's got more abilities than the mind reader. That's just the impression I get from watching the film, just from watching the, the character 
and the way that they interact and stuff. And I think it would have been a good writing decision because then there's, you know, more mystery behind him. And that's kind of what they wanted him to be. They wanted him to be a mystery, like, like almost like a mystery guide that was supposed to show up, be a thing, help set the characters up for their success. And then have, you know, he basically is like the um, Obi-Wan Kenobi of Rose Red. Yeah. And I'll agree with that. Um, I mean, it, in a way, it kind of makes sense that the cast would have um, a varied amount of power. Because, um, I mean, you think of your job, you think of your skill set that you just have personally. It's not like you can only do one thing. Like you might, you might be more proficient at one thing versus others, but it would just make sense that as far as being psychic goes um psychic psychic and while one thing is more dominant you can still every now and then do a little of this little of that like he says in the first episode yeah that's literally what he said a little of this a little of that i think we just have different interpretations of it and i know myself well enough to know i'll never let it go so we should probably (laughs) move on to a different topic that's Uh fine (laughs) me and dylan have the 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 security and knowing that we we had the numbers on this one but that's fine (laughs) anyway but i have one one line this movie's so full of stephen king ism sort of lines that only he would come up with one of my favorite deliveries though is in this episode where Joyce is clearly off her rocker and she um she's either talking to Nick or talking to Emery and she says, He's crazy. Can't you see he's crazy? And she's just like wild eyeing the whole set. Um just off her rocker as well. Um, oh yeah, it's whenever they're talking about death and how nobody in Rose Red really dies. Because um, Nick says a true death would be merciful. I just really like that line. I I like the line as well, but I wish we had more visual evidence to back it up. Because how often have we seen male ghosts or anything resembling a male ghost or or, or however you want to interpret that line actually on screen? We see Bollinger potentially no we don't because he wasn't dead we i mean we see bollinger at the end of the episode as a ghost but we don't see him as like an actual ghost until the end because up until this point he's been alive well i have a theory about that and why they appear the way they do because if you really pay attention to it when they're all in a group there at the end the women it they seem more like they're like the other women and kind of like like they're gonna end up mummified and of course joyce is is a ghost at the very end you know ghosty well as the men they just seem like they're shells of themselves and like it's their actual just bodies that the house is manipulating so like i have a theory that that's why men die at rose red and women disappear because I think once the house is done with the men and they die, if their body is taken out, it's whatever. But until then, they might use the the body as kind of like just a conduit, of uh, you know, to, to do some fuck shit. Um, but then they don't really care about the soul. You know, that it, it's a man. They don't really want men there. So I think it's more of just, you know, we'll kill them off because we don't want them here. 
we'll make a little bit of use out of them, but if someone comes and collects the body and takes it out, like, it's it's no skin off our back, they're still not around. So, like, I think what we're seeing at the end when it comes to the guys is I don't think it's their actual ghosts. I think it's their dead bodies um, being manipulated by the house because they just, like, look different than the other people, than, like, the women. And so, like, that's why, like, I... And it's mentioned multiple times in the movie, Rose Red doesn't like men. It likes women. Women go missing. Men die. That so would I don't make think the, they die. The horrible fate that Nick alludes to not really present, though, because if you die and your body is just used as a vessel, like that's way better than your soul being trapped for eternity or, or something like that. So I want to know what he thought was happening. My assumption is that if you're a man and you die at Rose Red, you don't get an afterlife. You just completely cease to exist. Whereas if you died on the outside, you know, there's an afterlife. There's things that happen to your spirit. And and I think with women, they're just, they don't even necessarily die. I think that they're just condemned there um, to, to be at the, at the house's influence and to be used by the house without any consent of their own at that point. Lots of things about this house. Again, one thing that really doesn't help is how laws it laissez-faire uh la, 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 la. well however you say it my tongue's not one to work today um laissez-faire there you go um <laughs> the whole cast is about the house being haunted and everything that's going on um i wanted to talk a little bit about the scene where kathy and nick leave emery's mother um just just by herself what do you guys think of that because i think that was kind of shitty i'll open that up to you jacob so when i watched this most recently before i watched it for this recording which was like i think a year and a half two years ago Uh i thought that that was kind of shitty but on the rewatch i feel like she had it coming honestly um they were They were trying to be reasonable with her. They were treating her relatively politely. And she was still snapping at them. She was calling Nick racial slurs. The the very fact that she's here at all is already like an affront to decency. So I feel like leaving her was justified. Like, get on board or get left. I I feel like there would still be a better way to do it. Um, I don't know. I might have just like tied a rope around her foot and then like walked it back to the group and say, hey guys, me and Kathy, we're just going to hang out in the kitchen for a while. So no need to come looking for us. We're good. Um, and naturally no one would. Emery's not going to get up. Um, and then they could just at least sit with her for that time being um they've well established that no one should be left alone hell the only reason uh nick went with kathy is because kathy was gonna go alone except god goes with her everywhere it's definitely irresponsible and unethical i would say to like tie her up and leave her alone I, i don't think it's a a positive moral decision to make Mm-hmm. And I think it reflects poorly on Nick and Kathy for doing it. But I also think Emery's mother had it coming. I don't think it goes down to, did she have it coming? I mean, 
I understand the logic behind it with everything Emery's going through and everything the rest of the group is going through. That's just one more thing to put on someone's shoulders. And it's kind of odd as buddy-buddy as they are at the end of the movie. Clearly, Kathy knew that whenever she left uh, Emery's mother, she was alive. Um, So either Emery's come to terms with the fact that Kathy was complicit in her mother, his mother getting killed, or Kathy just hasn't really felt the need to mention it. Okay, hot take. Maybe that's why Emery's happy and friends with them now. It's because <laughs> they killed his mother. Uh, well, I'd say it did help improve his life. I mean, no one's spending crazy amounts of money on credit cards, and he can actually get out in the world and do stuff. Instead of just be mommy's little boy and do mommy scoot a little scoot about, or they scoot about to the movies or for ice cream. Listen, I started calling my car um, mommy's little scoot about, and uh, my boyfriend hates me. Girl, I did too. (laughs) (laughs) My little scoot about. I pull up and uh, to my boyfriend's apartment, Chewy, his massive golden doodle um is always popping his head up in the window and it i always mutter to myself oh pc's mommy's little scoot about it's such a complicated emotion because emery's mother and the relationship between her and emery is clearly so toxic and dysfunctional and just really detrimental to emery's life but it's because of misdirected and overbearing wholesome love. Like, calling your damn car Mommy's Little Scootabout is so adorable. <laughs> I love when he's just, like, looking out the window. It's like, oh, it's Mommy's Little Stop looking at me. <laughs> and Nick is like, like Mommy's Little Scootabout. He's like, yeah, Scootabout the movies, Scootabout the ice cream. And he's like, stop looking at me. <laughs> There is a version of his relationship with his mother that is just slightly different, which is just so he- healthy and happy and cute, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if it, if it was just a little little bit different. Well, I mean, it's not really different. It's just boundaries. And the um, fact that he's a yeah, grown man. Just having <laughs> actual boundaries. And he's a grown man, and maybe he should live on his own. Um, and that'll help establish the majority of those boundaries. But you don't have to worry anymore because she's dead. Well, you probably can't <laughs> afford to live on his own. I mean, it's two thousand. It's two thousand one. He could have got in on an internet startup. Uh, on a more serious, he's note psychic. He could. Mother. He's psychic. Yeah. He could be a huckster. I do think it's an excellent point you brought up. Like Kathy and Nick are both either directly or indirectly responsible for his mother's death, and they're just chilling with him like nothing's Mm -hmm. wrong. Do you think they told him? Does he know? No, they never made it back. They never made it... Well, Kathy did, but Nick didn't. Um, That was the whole thing. Yeah, Kathy did, though. Yeah, and she she just never told him. Well, and I think she... I think Emery came to the conclusion that she was dead whenever they finally are able to, like, leave, and they're running out, and Emery gets grabbed by his mom, and you can tell she's obviously dead, and he's like, you're not here. He's like, not real, not real, not real, and, like, really uses his psych... That's, Mm -hmm. like, his psychic flex when he basically, like, that last time he, like, uh, pushes the the ghosts back. Um, 
you know, towards that end. And I think at that moment, he just kind of, he, he just accepts it for what it is and chalks it up to, you know, she came to the house, and, you know, she just kind of died because everybody dies here. So I, 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 I think it would have been a big, like a bigger deal if Kathy had brought it up, but I don't think he ever asked. I think he was more content. That's what happened with it. And you know what? Uh, at least now I don't have to pay her credit card bills. So. Yeah, dead bitches pay no bills. Um, probably shouldn't. Anyway, um, <laughs> not if you do it right. <laughs> as sweet as the little coda at the end was, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, but as sweet as the coda at the end was, I realistically couldn't see myself going anywhere near that house. And it's relatively soon, it's like probably a couple months later because they haven't demolished it yet. But they're all having a little cute scene where we're getting character resolves that are unearned because, ooh, the passage of time, anything can happen. Um, But I could not see myself uh, going anywhere near that house. I mean, sweet, they did a memorial, but no, I'm sorry. It's going to be a no for me, dog. (laughs) Mm-hmm. What is a the plaque in the park or something? What is the memorial for exactly? Is it for the people that died? Is it to commemorate their experience in the house? It's for people what? that died. They put a rose down for everyone that died. Yeah. Okay. They put a rose down. Roses mean remember. Um. So what that's is that from? Whole... Is that from? That's from a different movie, ain't it? No, it's from this. No, one. that's from. Is that's it from Rose Red? Yeah, it's from the movie we're talking about, Martha. <laughs> no, just... have you watched it? No, it's just that's not one of those sayings that you feel like you've heard like a million different places. Like when you said it, I could hear it in my mind. Like I heard the line. I just in my it was one of those like ambiguous type deals that I could see it being in like several different movies. Well, I, I mean, I, I think it is just a thing. Like, I believe that people do say roses mean that you are remembering someone. They also mean uh, love. Yeah. But, like, no, that's that's the line at the end. I, I think it's I uh, Annie that says it. Yeah, right? it's Annie mm-hmm. that says it. And, like, when you said it, I heard it in Annie's voice. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Maybe I just thought it was Rose from Two and a Half Men. One thing, one thing I appreciated about... One thing I appreciated but didn't think was absolutely necessary was the scene bit at the end when everything's going on uh, where Kathy's lost in the house and she goes to the attic and she has this whole vision of John Rimbauer getting killed. While I liked it, I don't think it was really necessary for this part of the story. Um, I feel like by this point we should have fully been in the present. And the whole revelation that Sukina and Ellen killed John really doesn't resolve anything or explain anything that would be crucial to the climax of this story. And I don't so think anyone just, cared. Yeah, no, I mean, by this point, we should be fully invested in what's happening in the present. Now, if something in the present makes sense of something in the past, that's one thing. But this really doesn't add anything to the story we're in it just is its own separate little bubble what do you think about that it's also not hard as you're watching it through the first time to assume early on that ellen killed him because she talks about how she hated him (laughs) and talked about how it makes 
the house makes people mad. And so when you see he's going through a window and what you've seen of his character, you know that bitch didn't kill himself. Like he, There is no way a man like that would have killed himself. They, he, had, he got checked out the window by somebody and she seemed to hate him more than anybody else. So she checked him out the window. It's, it's, it's not... Uh, it, it's not but a hop, skip, and, you know, a way, you know, from you making that conclusion yourself. Or that, so for them to carve out that time so later down the road, after not even mentioning it for, like, hours at this point, you know, it, it just, it seems, like you said, like a waste of a scene potential. Like, they could have done something else with it. Like, the, you know, something to relate to what's currently going on in the present, or at least just staying in the present. You know, there, there's a lot different that they could do with that time that they could have done that they just chose not to to waste fucking time on that bullshit. So, yeah, yeah no, I agree. There is definitely no need for it. Yeah, because it sure wasn't April's withered arm having ass yeah, that, chucking that grown men out the window. Any damn conclusion to that, neither. That's... <laughs> Yeah, what was with the whole scene where April uh, is in Ellen's dress and Steve tackles her thinking that's going to kill her? Like, I just, there's just a lot. <laughs> like, it's a just lot. a lot that you're, you just, you watch it and you're like, why? What are the, and that's the way with a lot of Stephen King stuff, though. Especially mm-hmm. these these made for TV miniseries. There's a lot that you watch and you're just like, what the fuck did that have to do with like anything? Like, what? Why did he write this? Like, why? Mm-hmm. Like, I just have. It's unnecessary. Like, I don't have any further questions other than why the fuck. <laughs> That's the only question I got. Jacob, what are your two cents? Uh, referring to John being killed by Ellen and Zucchina. Like, just when or, they decide to, to uncover that information, like some revelation towards the very end. I, I mean, I, I was chomping at the bit to say exactly what the two of you already said, so I don't really have much to add. Like, I don't think that any reasonable person thought anything other than they killed John. Like, yeah, there are other potential explanations, but that's obviously the most likely. So I don't see why they felt the need to show this at all. Like, I think that you could have just it's assumed to be true, just like you said. I don't think it adds to the story. It is honestly kind of insulting to the audience to say that they were, like, too dumb to get it. I would say there is a bit of sexual tension between Ellen and Tsukina in that scene. Perhaps in the original script, there might have been a kiss there, and I feel like that would have helped establish some things um, that we have in the story. Yeah, they definitely fucked. Yeah. Um, it was but, also the early 2000s, though, so they were yeah, like... Yeah, but what we, we got be, was like, just kind of, eh. They're like, if we put in a kissing scene, it'll be like we're trying to copy the Desperate Housewives, and we don't want to do that. So, we, we were discussing, uh, why did you choose to do that? What did you guys think of the suit of armor? Just out of curiosity. Oh. Um, they ran out of ideas. Yeah. It was very <laughs> Scooby-Doo. It was very Scooby Doo. Exactly what I thought. Isn't there like a scene of that, uh, like almost exactly in? Is it the first Scooby Doo or the second? It's the witch's Scooby Doo. No, no, I get what you're saying. It's the Black Knight in um, uh, Scooby Doo Two Monsters Unleashed. But they also do something with it in the first one. It's it's a very common trope in Scooby Doo. Yeah, there's there's also a suit of armor and Scooby Doo and the witch's ghost. 
Yeah. At the very start of it when they're in the museum. Oh my god, it would be so funny if they did that where it's chasing them and because the house keeps changing around every time they go in one door they come out another one directly across from it and they're doing the whole <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god, yes. I need that in uh, my life now. Speaking of witches ghosts though, shout out to Tim Curry as Ben Ravencroft. Oh my god, way. yes. Friend of the yes. pod. Love it. Oh my gosh. This is so great. And then also all the bangers. I still to this day every Halloween the Hex Girls play nonstop. You know, I also love that she they got more music throughout the subsequent films. I love that they were recurring characters. They weren't supposed to be. They were supposed to be one offs, but like them Hex Girls, man. Mm. Well, didn't they come back in the Scooby-Doo Down Under? Is that what yes, it was? Yes, they do. Yeah, because they, there's the rock competition in Australia, and they're there to for the competition. Yep, yep, yep. And they were yep. in, an, they were in uh, Scooby-Doo uh, Mystery Incorporated, and they were in Scooby-Doo and Guess Who. Um, they yeah. had a whole guest spot on there. Um, they had a whole um, plot. Like, they were part of a whole plot in one of the newer Scooby-Doo animated series. I just... Where, like, and Daphne it's... joins them. It's crazy. I just wish they had more continuity with it. Um, yeah. Because every time like they meet this. someone, they're like, it's the Hex Girls. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, wa- I watch old Scooby-Doo so many times, and every damn time they meet fucking Don Knotts, fucking May- <laughs> Mayberry, Andy Griffith, Barney Fife's ass, and they're like, oh my god, it's Don Knotts. <laughs> Like you met him six times, homie. <laughs> but I love how they meet the Hex Girls the same way, like they're real people. Yeah. <laughs> like they've got their own like um uh fandom now in the mm-hmm. Scooby Doo universe. Uh, this would have been a fun crossover though, like Scooby Doo meets Ellen Rimbauer. <laughs> Let's see oh my who gosh, this monster really is. We need to do a Kickstarter. Like man! I think it's some vampire lesbians! (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's an actual movie, right? (laughs) Sapphic suckers. (laughs) Oh my god. That's an actual... I I love the vampire lesbian movie. It's it's hilarious. Is it a movie that's appropriate for families, Martha? Or is it one of those that that you have to get from the... From the beaded room at Sparta no, TV and Appliance. It's definitely in the beaded room because there's definitely there's I mean it's 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 a movie about lesbian vampires. You know there's titties everywhere. <gasps> and they're siskering. I still can't figure out if Sapphic Suckers is actually the name of the movie or if Dylan just said that. I, I just Dylan said just it. Said that. Okay. <laughs> you I know, would have believed it. it. You're you're more than welcome no, to use that. No, it's actually titled something like Lesbian Vampires. <laughs> and it it was it if you watch the commercials it's very much in the vein as like Dale and Tucker uh, versus the Evil Dead or whatever. Or Dale and Tucker. Whatever the fucking Tucker movie and is. Tucker and Dale versus Tucker Dale. Dale. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that one. It's very much in the same vein as that. But Okay, so back on back on subject. When everything's going just haywire crazy, to kind of reference an earlier question, I think Emery has probably the most complete arc since his was about independence, knowing what was real and what wasn't real, and dealing with his mother. 
he's the only one who gets like a solid beginning, middle, and end of his story when he has his conflict with his mother and he has to essentially fight her uh, when he's when he's getting dragged into the mirror. Um, as for the other characters, not so much. I mean, Steve's story only ends whenever Rose Red is torn down. Um, Joyce, Joyce wasn't really evil enough to deserve a comeuppance. Um, I, where she I, dies I at the. Agree on that one. I mean. Yeah, but it's not like a, it's not like she was cocky, like she was, this was her, uh, uh, not Ishmael, the other character in Moby Dick. Help me out, Jacob. The whale? No. (laughs) The captain. Moby Dick? (laughs) Captain Ahab. Ahab. Yeah. There was no, um, if. Rose Red is the whale. There was no... You could put Joyce as the Ahab character, but there's not this sort of cocky sense of anything. So I really feel like she was just a woman whose mental illness exploded and then she dies. So there's always... I mean, I don't feel like she did... I mean, did she do things deliberately and intentionally? Yes. But did she do them... Because maybe she just had a bit of a mental break. Like, I personally she... think she did it with intention. Like, just I think that's part of the reason why she was so willing to like offer any more money is because she just genuinely thought they were either all going to die or. I don't like, think she, she thought that dangerous. in the beginning. I mean, she maybe not thought they were die, but she definitely knew that there was a risk, and she definitely knew it wasn't a dead cell. Mm-hmm. You can't sit there and tell me that she genuinely believed it was dead and that nothing was going to happen. That they really just wanted a twitch. If she really just wanted a twitch, they would have left after that scream in the damn hallway. After they'd been there for five minutes. Mm-hmm. There was your damn twitch. Because they got it on camera. This... Yeah, the- I, oh, sorry, dude. I, 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 no, it's alright. I'm with Martha completely on that one. Like, I think Joyce was very co- uh, cognizant of her actions. I think she did it on purpose. She endangered everyone around her. At first for her own aggrandizement, and then for whatever the fuck reason, I don't even know. But even if it was just like an explosion of mental illness, you still have to be held culpable for your effect on the world around you. She was recklessly endangering these people. She was a villain. Uh, and I think that she kind of got what she deserved. Yeah, okay. I see that point. Um, <laughs> but what are our thoughts on the kind of climax of this story? For me, it felt a little bit like you had some fireworks and then you had some snakes and sparklers. Yeah. Um, like you had yeah. cool stuff happening, but then you had um, the fucking uh, me- thing in the suit of armor. And lights popping off and i don't feel like it watching it this time it didn't feel like an earned finale um weird yeah because they decided to use kathy's ability for the auto right like i don't know just the whole situation of it and how they reached the conclusion of doing that was going to be it just felt very forced because it felt like it could have happened this whole time 
It and that could have happened this whole time. Nothing was keeping Annie from doing that with Kathy. It was like, oh, here's an idea. I'll do the thing that I was brought here to do. That, and I mean, they just kind of like say it. Like at that point in the movie, they're, you know, that this last end part, they're like, you know, we're just going to say things and we're going to go with it. There's not really mm-hmm. going to be any build up to it. It's just going to be, oh, well, we're going to try this now. And that's, it's close enough to the end time of the movie. We all know it's going to work. <laughs> so it's just kind of like. Yeah, and that's literally it. And that's literally it. And that's it with a lot of Stephen King movies, too. It's like, well, these characters have hung out long enough. Time to grand finale it. Yeah, so we know whatever they're getting ready to do, it's either going to work or they are going to die. Because, you know, he's not scared mm-hmm. of killing everybody, so. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Jake? What? What do you think? Um, So, I feel like the climax doesn't really accomplish anything meaningful. It's just, a, it's like you said, fireworks, and I would use that almost more literally. There are a lot of visual effects. There's the struggle for them to escape the house. There's the scene with Emery's mother. But to me, and I would hope to most people, stories are ultimately about people. It's about the struggles that people are facing and, and overcoming. And... I don't feel like we had any great conflict of personality in this climax. I don't feel like characters learned anything meaningful from it. I don't feel like Martha and I were talking in the beginning about how we feel like most of the characters didn't even really have arcs to begin with. Um, And we don't really have any resolution with the house either. Like it's just going to be destroyed. We didn't, we didn't get a deep dive into Ellen's psyche, see her feelings or her regrets or anything like that. This whole ordeal that these characters went through just kind of feels pointless to me. Uh, like, yes, they they kind of came out better for it. Like, Annie's clearly more social. Steve is more well-adjusted. Emery has a life now. But I don't feel like the struggles that they were facing were in any way thematically related to Rose Red in the first no. place. No. If uh, anything, I would say that um, Annie's... Annie's coming out of her shell is just because of um is because of uh her going to that school. Like a real a really cliche example of how to do this would be you have a bunch of different characters harboring various resentments mm. for the way the world has treated them. Ironically, like Joyce actually does, and then they see the way that resentment has metastasized in Ellen and created this this mm-hmm. massive evil uh location in which they are all suffering and then that kind of leads them toward the realization that they have to deal with the problems in their own life like again that's very cliche but that would be a way they thematically connect the two for me there was really no thematic connection this was just stephen king going like what if we had a big house dude yeah i mean i don't know why stephen king's i don't know why stephen king sounds like that but yeah, I think you get the idea. I mean, I believe the impression. Um, but yeah, it just seemed like th- you were right, Jacob. The The climax in the story didn't happen. It wasn't a character-motivated climax. It was just the music started swelling and they knew it was about time for them to get off the stage, so they started doing stuff that would wrap up the story. Um because, again, at no point in time was there a reason that Kathy 
couldn't do the um, automatic writing with Annie. There was nothing. There was nothing controlling that. That could have been a plan A. That was just never utilized till the finale. Um, and there was really no reason why they had to do it then. It was just kind of like everybody who had been so complicit about this haunted house and people dying was finally like, you know what, this quit being fun. Let's go ahead and do this thing that we could have done this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, what? one thing that you hear about writing characters with magical powers is that you have to put limitations on them because mm-hmm. you can't create conflict around omnipotent characters. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that's a mistake they made with Rose Red. Because in relation to the characters, I feel like Rose Red is, is nearly omnipotent. Mm-hmm. We've seen that the with their psychic abilities, they can fight back to an extent, but with the ability to change rooms and impersonate people and like resurrect the dead and attack with like vampiric mummy corpses mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and suits of armor. But I think that one was actually Annie. I'm not sure. Uh, there, it feels like the house could have killed them at any moment, mm-hmm. at the very least at any moment after the first night, like once they got a hold of Annie properly. The house could have just killed them all. So why didn't it? Why is it fucking around? Uh, I don't know. To me, the ha- Rose Red kind of comes off as incompetent to me. I mean, I also think part of the reason why it, it fucked around with them so much is I think that's part of what Rose Red thrives on, is that chaos. Because, you know, like she said, like that quote, you know, the house takes the on the personality or essence of, like, the occupants. Like, I think that the more chaos that ensues and the more stuff that happens, the more that the house can feed on it. So instead of just, you know, essentially it was playing with its food to get a little bit more enjoyment out of it, I think. I, I would agree with that, but I I don't understand why when it realized the food was about to escape, it wouldn't just be like, okay, no, fuck this, kill him. You're right. The house is omnipotent. Maybe, I mean, you really can't explain it. Annie being the sort of all-powerful character, you can work with that because she has autism, so you're not really sure what she can control and what she can't control. And like we discussed in an earlier episode, we're not really certain um, whose side she's really on all the time or really if she knows what side she's on. So that's fun. But... As far as the house goes, it clearly wants people to stay, and it does try to make people stay. And then they, the house is easily overcome with the um, things at their disposal. Like, they didn't have to team up or join hands and combine their forces to um, defeat obstacles. It was just more of a one-on-one sort of thing. I one thing that would have helped explain this to me is if we could have had a scene of Zucchina like hunched over a desk with an oil lamp mm-hmm. going over the film's budget mm-hmm. to see like what she can and can't do with the house. Uh, uh no. Because <laughs> I, that would have helped to explain some of the limitations. <laughs> uh and and as far as like just killing them all, I mean I, I would like to know exactly what the house's plan is because I feel like to a certain extent they don't – the house doesn't want to kill them because it's their presence that is bringing the house to life. Mm-hmm. But what is the long-term plan here? 
Well, if like, they like, are spectral forces, they kind of are there. So that psychic energy must stay with the house. Do we? Can we confidently state that though? No. Like, lots and lots of people have died. You would think that would be enough psychic energy already. Yeah, but this is like the first time we've had like psychic psychics. And furthermore, why wasn't Joy satisfied? Whenever, because she was looking for concrete proof, not just readings, whatever. She had all the stuff on camera. She had the um, b the thing that measured the bodies in the certain room, and it was full of people. And you could see on camera that a bunch of people dressed in early millennia clothes were having a party. Even though it was just a... um recycled footage from a flashback from the first episode playing on the camera. I'm sorry, so you're, you're questioning once again like why Joyce wasn't satisfied with the evidence that she got? Well, yeah, that and the power of the house. Like The house has all this power. She really should have been satisfied with the information she got, but I don't know. I just feel like this... Didn't focus enough on the characters that needed focusing on, and it didn't uh, do what it was supposed to um, in landing. Um, yeah, striking the landing. Um, but I still enjoyed it. I mean, <laughs> for what okay, it's worth. <laughs> I'm about to go on a bit of a tangent with some weird-ass questions, so if anyone wants to, like, respond to Dylan before I do that. Okay, this will be our wrap-up section. How about that? <laughs> Rapid-fire wrap-up. <laughs> Come on. Hit us with it. Okay, okay. So, you talked about how if they died and their energy remained in the house, potentially their psychic energy would remain as well, but we don't know. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the thing that makes me curious about about a phenomenon like that is, in one sense, the ability to interact with the spirit world is a psychic power, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, oh, I did the right thing. Uh, so once you become part of the spirit world, how does that psychic, doesn't that psychic power become redundant because you are by... Uh, nature interacting with the spirit world like would psychic power then give you more of an ability to interact with the physical world well all these psychics okay so the psychics we have they don't really it's crazy you mention it now but none of them were specified as specializing in seeing ghosts um which i think yeah. is important to note you have precognitives postcognitives telekinetics um, touch nose automatic riders, but you don't have people who specialize in seeing ghosts. It's just can, supposed to I be inherent. Addendum on that. I, even though it isn't directly stated, I would say it's pretty obvious that Emery, to an extent, specializes in that because he's constantly seeing ghosts. He's seeing the past, though. So and that's a that's a good statement to bring up. Is he seeing ghosts, or is he just in tune with the past? I mean, well, the past includes dead people, but is it really dead people, or is it just the past showing itself? Well, number one, the ghosts talk to him, like, in the present tense. Mm -hmm. And two, do we see him seeing anything in the past that's not a ghost? 
not for the context of the story. I don't know. No. So I think it's safe to say that Emery probably does usually specialize in dead people. Yeah, and I think that that does have to come with being the post-cognitive of him seeing, you know, seeing things that have already already passed. That essentially could mean people, people that have already passed. Gives him that channel. Exactly. So I think that, you know, that's what he kind of mainly does, but... And then Kathy, as an automatic writer, um, she can she can do a lot with that. Um, we know she can figure out people's thoughts, kind of read people's minds through it, kind of uh, predict some things. But she even says she doesn't use a Ouija board because the channel's too open. So she can commune with the dead. It's just something she prefers not to do. So the original question, which I apologize if I interrupted your answer, if someone has the psychic power to interact with the dead and that power stays with them when they themselves die, how does it manifest? Well, I was, I mean, I guess for this story, it's not really uh, relevant, but I'd just probably say that um, just from what I know of other King works, it just makes them a more active spirit. I could see that. As it were. Um, yeah, from from the things I've read from Stephen King, the way he typically writes ghosts, um, is that if they, since everything's made up of psychic energy, if you as a person already have a higher than usual psychic energy, that usually means you're going to be a more than active spirit. My second question, which is sort of the one that kind of that goes off the deep end a little bit, because it's not super rose red related, but it's about like the context of psychic powers. When somebody is precognitive or postcognitive, it often feels like there's a range, uh, like a temporal range to an extent. Like if you have somebody in the year 2000 who is seeing the future or seeing the past, they are usually seeing the future or the past within a range of like 50 to 100 years. Or maybe maybe even two or three hundred years, but you usually don't see like thousands of years passing. Is that a fair statement to make for most psychic portrayals? Most, I mean, I would say so, but the logic behind it is usually it's connected. It has to be grounded with something in their present reality. Um, okay. S- such a, I mean, just like people in their lifetime. I've seen certain cases where it's shown where like they touch a tree and they can see when the tree falls down in a couple hundred years or but like it's it, connected to the energy of the objects and the atmosphere around you. Yes. Okay. So that makes sense cuz I was the re, my motivation for asking was like what would happen if you had a post or precognitive psychic and then they time traveled. Would would the range of their psychic abilities then shift? to accommodate the new timeline that they are in. I believe so. I, I would it, agree. Yeah, it's just, it, it, it just, it, it's like it, their psychic ability has to akin to um, the psychic frequencies of another thing, and that only goes so far. Unless you're just like super weird and you can just kind of because there are some psychics in media who are triggered more by events than people, i.e. Raven Baxter from That So Raven. Um, 
I mean, I hate to use her, but she is a very popular television psychic. Uh, Raven Baxter, people will say something, and then she'll have a vision about it. But then again, that is the triggering event, is um, the event itself. Did you have any input on any of this wild theorization, Martha? I mean, honestly, like, I just kind of agree with what, what Dylan had to say about it, that it kind of just, you know their abilities are amplified but i mean going like time traveling though that's a different concept ah I, I mean any piece of fiction i've ever read that had something to do with someone's abilities time traveling i mean they were always still able to use their abilities what um, about non-fiction martha um if we were to apply it if if someone with superpowers traveled in no no i'm just saying in your non-fiction writing i mean in your non-fiction reading about psychics who time travel what have you experienced or maybe <laughs> maybe you haven't read any non-fiction psychics going into the future if not you should um educate oh, yourself that that is a good point i probably should do that if i'm gonna speak on such matters yeah you you're gonna offend still? a lot of people in the future <laughs> What do you what? recommend she start with? Um, it hasn't been written yet. <laughs> He's like, I gotta write that. I'm, I'll get back to you in about six months to a year. No, it just hasn't been written because it's an autobiography. Okay. <laughs> yep. John Benet Ramsey didn't die. She just oh traveled. Oh my god, she just traveled. <laughs> the autobiography oh of an immortal would be an interesting concept like the life story of someone who will never die so their life story never ends it's basically you mean the bible (laughs) it's called the bible jacob i'm not not making the connection there (laughs) the life story of an immortal it's the story of god is, is it really? It's really. It seems more like the story of random desert people interacting with God. Yeah, and he's like, "Okay, I need you to write this." And yeah, honestly, they're, someone they're, wrote they this like, on a tablet in the desert, and we found it, and we were just like, at some point, they didn't even. Like, oh my god! This yeah, was written on skin. <laughs> this was written on skin, but I swear the Lord told me to write it, so I did. <laughs> Um, I did some flourishes though, so it's a lot better, <laughs> much better. It's the story of God told by man. <laughs> I love that. I mean, but but then you have people that also believe that some random dude in like the 1600s had spoke to by God, and that was legit. So I mean, we can't offend them. They are a major <laughs> demographic, Martha. Say something nice. Say something nice about the fundamental Church of Latter Day Saints. You're creative. (laughs) 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 They're a creative and insightful people. (laughs) I didn't feel like she was being offensive. Like, if you're going to believe that the exact same thing happened like two or three thousand years ago, why won't you believe that it happened four hundred years ago? I feel like that's hypocritical. Mm, I mean, they're... Hmm. You don't have to believe the individual claims that a person makes, but to dismiss it on principle, I think, is wrong. We're widely off-topic. Yeah, we're, 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 we're now in... Uh, we're in a okay. danger zone. 
literally the first like 10 minutes of this podcast was about Waffle House. I don't know what you mean <laughs> off topic. <laughs> hey guys, welcome to the third and final episode of our uh, October long Rose Red special. Uh, so I was getting an angel shot at Waffle House the other day and this bitch made me some French toast. <laughs> and I cried be- because my Tinder date was from Jupiter. Uh, and he kept talking about having to go feed his kids. And then it made me question religion. Yeah. <laughs> the Mormons were like, hey, have you thought about not doing this? And instead, you know... But Jesus. this speaks to Stephen King's wonderful writing in that his writing can invoke these things and invoke these conversations that he meant for people to have. And that yes, really, uh, that really, as an author, is what you want out of your work to inspire. If anyone such is offended by anything I have said this episode, it was Stephen King's fault, not mine. Yeah. The views and opinions expressed today are not the views and ex- <laughs> opinions um, of the podcast as a whole. Um, the views and opinions expressed in this episode are entirely belonging to Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> Not to put words in someone's mouth, but... <laughs> You're going to have to cut all of this. <laughs> Everything nope. that we've said today is the official opinion of Stephen King. <laughs> Please Trademark. say something to him about it. <laughs> O.J. Simpson is innocent. <laughs> oh don't even don't even we will we will have a fight about that one <laughs> is it just me or did we already talk about that in the podcast in another episode rose red um actually oj didn't kill nicole brown simpson or ron goldman it was rose red <laughs> yep i mean you, you think this is bad i've been like Storing up this rant in my head about how Rush Limbaugh is related to Rose Red. Uh, and, like, I was going to do this whole bit about it, but I never found the opportunity. Jacob, <laughs> did you have another question to derail the pod? No, no, I think I've done a good enough job. You said you had a couple. I did, I asked you too. Oh. <laughs> Does anyone else have anything to add? <laughs> if not, you sound we like you're in pain, that Dylan. In counting. <laughs> I don't really have anything else to say. I think we've gone pretty much off the deep end here with this episode. I mean, I know it kind of sounds like we've shat on it a bit, but it comes from a place of love, and that's what we do here on this podcast. We shit on things we love. That's just what Rose Red does to you. This is it makes you shit on things you love. <laughs> um and that's you throw it. and that's one of the kinky things that John and Ellen did. Oh, you shit on things you love. On on who? I wonder if that's how she got the STD. It probably is. I mean, there was some weird. There was some weird stuff in the book. I don't. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, uh, poo play was not on the table. Uh, so the verbiage she used was carried on by Ellen. men, carried by men and suffered by women, right? Yeah. yeah it Maybe it was literal. Thing. Maybe he walked up to her with a turd in his hand and <laughs> threw it at her. We need to stop while we're ahead. Oh my god. Ahead? 
<laughs> what are we ahead of? <laughs> the track stopped a long time ago. Oh. You know, I would reference the uh, Horror Express, but uh, nobody watched that episode, so they won't get it. Go watch Horror <laughs> Express. Okay. Uh, what was your joke, so, Jacob? My joke? What? What was your What was your anecdote about Horror Express? I, Come on, we got to promote that baby. It's I, a good one. It's a good episode too. It's a fucking good movie. I don't know why y'all haven't watched it, <laughs> and I don't know why you haven't listened to the episode. It's something I really care about, and like, if you're cool, you're in the know. Go fucking listen to Horror Express. Yeah. It's like our second episode. Quit cool. yelling at the audience. I'll do what I want. It's 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 a share of my podcast. No, you say podcast, we, we went I'll off the about... we went off the rails worse than the train at the end. Ah, uh, yes. It's his podcast. Kelly Savalas would have made this movie so much better. The audience is up on the icy cliffs, just watching us crash and burn below. Well, we've talked about this movie for three weeks, so for the three of you that are still here, um, thank you so much. Um, thank you for making us a part of your spooky season. Um, and now I think we're going to wrap up with our final deep or cut segment. And if you're new to this, which you shouldn't be, go ahead, uh, give us a like, subscribe, that way you can be notified whenever the new episodes drop. Um... You will know that this deeper cut segment means we will rate it either deep, meaning we think it's good, we think you'll enjoy it, or if it should be cut, meaning you should probably find something else to watch with your time. But if you know us, you know we don't normally do three-part episodes, so you kind of know our opinion on this already. Jacob, I'm going to hand it to you first. So, as much as I praised and all of us praised Rose Red for the entirety of this this three episodes, I have to admit that it falls into the category of media that frustrates me the most, which is wasted potential. When I go to the movies and I see a, a terrible film, I don't care. Like, it doesn't affect my day. I don't think about it because it was just a terrible film. But... But, but films like Rose Red have the potential to be amazing. There's like so much that you could have done and so many complex character stories that you, you could have put into it and, and really made it something. And I feel like they didn't do that. I, no question about it. I'm still going to say deep because I, I love this movie and I think that it does a lot of good things, but it could have done so much more. So, I mean, I'm going to have a, just a never ending array of complaints to raise about how good movies like this could have been and maybe it was writing maybe it was budget i I don't know but i want that netflix series see i you know obviously it's going to be a a deep for me as well i and i definitely agree with what jacob said about like there's definitely areas that it could have improved um but just i i think everybody needs to watch this at least once like you need to to experience Rose Red for what it is, all the ups and the downs, um, just because it's just something that stays with you. Like you think about it, like consistently after you've witnessed a scene from it, and you're just like, "What the hell?" And it grabs you in a way that you keep watching, even though there's parts that really 
kind of confuse you and don't make much sense and there's just a lot more that could have been done with them you still keep watching because you want to know what happens like you want to know and the thing with Stephen King is you don't really know what's going to happen like anything could happen and just about everything does happen you just don't know when or why or what and I think that's the beautiful chaos of it is it's it's just really fun to watch because you don't you don't know what's going to happen it's not super predictable um, so if you, you know, <clears throat> if you enjoy that and you just enjoy Stephen King and then just this style of writing and you, you enjoy, you know, uh, learning about characters, not necessarily getting that development, um, Rose Red is definitely for you and I highly recommend finding a way to watch it or if you're ever presented with the ability to watch it, definitely act on it and, you know, for sure you need to watch it at least once. If I can add just a little addendum on that before we move on i love that you talked about how it you know it sticks with you and you think about it because in the very first episode of this podcast we praised carnival of souls for how evocative it was in exciting the imagination and and sort of inspiring other thoughts and other stories and to me i think that's what rose red did like for all its flaws i still possess this deep love of giant haunted house stories and we talked in the in the uh, part one episode of all the different properties that use this trope, and I love basically all of them, and I think that that stems from Rose Red. So so even if this movie wasn't as good as it could be, it will probably make me continue to consume stories of a similar nature for the rest of my life, and maybe even write some of my own. So for that reason alone, I think it is worth watching. Yeah, I I agree with you, Jacob. Uh, For my closing deeper cut statement, I'm going to preface by saying, on this show, we say a lot of silly things. Um, But when it comes to movies, we don't... I try... We try really hard to make this show not be a voice of the internet and that it speaks to hyperbole in that... um, you'll see the latest movie come out or the latest show and you'll see reviews saying this is the worst written movie ever. This is the worst directed movie, worst acting. And when you watch it, you can tell people are clearly turning in a serviceable performance. It's just not to your liking. Um, I would like to say that if that is um, the type of person that you are, when you watch movies, you're probably not going to get a whole lot out of this. Um, because it doesn't it doesn't exceed fully in a lot of aspects, but is still very enjoyable. Um, and that is due in part to Stephen King, not that it's the best Stephen King. And I'll go even further and say that the whole mission statement behind this was to get visibility for this project that people worked on um, and is, in my opinion, one uh still one of the better Stephen King adaptations out there, or Stephen King properties, I should say, since this isn't a direct adaptation. Um, when you look at the pantheon of his work that is available on media release, there are definitely some flops out there. And while mileage is going to vary on whether or not this is a flop or whether it's really enjoyable, um. I I can safely attest that this is on at least the lower middle 
of that side at worst. Um, when you consider movies like sometimes they come back, sometimes they come back again, and sometimes they come back for more, is available on DVD and streaming currently. The Lawnmower Man, The Lawnmower Man 2, available to watch pretty much anywhere. A lot of these movies you can watch for free. Um, the list goes on. There's Salem's Lot. There's Return to Salem's Lot. All these Stephen King... Pro- Hell, there's... We talked about it earlier. There's like 12 Children of the Corn movies that you can just readily watch. I believe it's a shame that um, the work that was put into this movie could be potentially lost to time because this isn't available to watch other than a DVD release that came, that stopped printing in 2006 um, and isn't available anywhere else. So your options to watch it are either you have to um, watch it by some other means on the internet, i.e. pirating. Although I don't, even though that's not something I wholly condone, if it's something that's not available on any sort of platform where any of the artists who worked on the film are going to receive return on investment for their work. What other option do you have? Or you can buy the DVD used if you see it out and about or um, on Amazon, even though it's listed now for like 50 bucks on Amazon. Um, But I'm going to say this is deep because this did inspire me from a very young age to write and to want to tell stories. And it, even as an adult, sparks my imagination. And my main source of frustration comes from not being able to sort of peek around the corner. Uh, there's a lot of times this story uh, walks us down a hallway and we see all these wonderful things and we want to see what's around the corner. But the tour stops at the corner, right? When you know things are definitely going to get really good. Um, so I'm going to close it out and say that it is a deep for me. Does anyone else have anything to add? You said you were closing it. <laughs> you can't <laughs> add after you close it. Oh, well, yeah, but uh, does anyone else have anything else to say? I wanted to point out, like, you, you said that you didn't want us to just be the hyperbolized voice of the internet. And then you were talking about movies that get uh, reviewed, like, just, just ground into the dirt like zero out of ten one out of ten terrible i think it's important not to do the opposite as well i I feel like i see that more often nowadays every single thing that comes out is just like rave reviews look how amazing this is and we every single one of us here loves this movie and so i think it's it's good to it's good that we spent like six hours mostly talking about all the things it did wrong. Uh, be- because it's especially important for the things you love to be honest about the ways in which that they can improve. Because if all you do is praise something, then it's never going to change. Yeah. And for, for perspective, um, let's take a, uh, recent, well, let's take, a. Uh, find a recent movie let's say disney's live action um let's see here let me pick one okay let's say disney's beauty and the beast the live action one that came out um several years ago 
Um, you had a lot of people saying that Emma Emma Watson's acting was just the worst thing they'd ever seen. Um, and the CGI was god-awful. It was terrible. Uh, the worst they'd ever seen. The story was garbage, this and that. Um, and while those things are able to be critiqued, it's not necessarily true. Um, especially if you're a horror fan, I guarantee you, you have seen worse acting and worse performances than Emma Watson's. I guarantee you've seen more special effects. Um, namely because this movie, ha I mean, uh, the product we're talking about right now has those. Um, but it's not necessarily its fault because it's a made-for-TV special in 2001. Um, and we do do a good job, all three of us, when we talk about movies, to talk about the things we liked, the things we didn't like, and... It might seem contrary when we get to the end, but like when we talked about on in the apocalypse, we we dogged the whole thing, but we said, you know what? This is actually this is actually something you should see. Go watch it. No, I mean that pretty much goes in line with what I think too. For all of its flaws, it's still something that just stays with you, and like I said, you think about, and it's it's just definitely worth it. So yeah, I agree. Just just find a way to watch it and watch it, and then you'll understand why for every all the key points, pain points that we hate or that we just don't necessarily like. There is a million other things that you just can't help but just really love about it. So sorry, it's just kind of weird that we're closing this out, right? Because we just spent like three whole episodes, six hours talking about it. I haven't talked six hours about a movie since Carnival of Souls. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, it's good that it's like uh, the end of our special then right it's like a beginning and an end yeah so if you if you guys like this episode again make sure you uh, rate and subscribe and also leave us a review on your podcasting platform of your choice um, also you can follow us on social media at dporapod on twitter instagram you can also email us recommendations at deepcutsofhorror at gmail.com. And also make sure you join us next week because we are going to be hosting our Halloween special. Me and Jacob are super excited about it. Um, so we'll see you all then. And until next time, stay spooky. Stay spooky.